most frequent sin we sin. Now I promise you I'm going to be talking about the judgment seat of Christ and the return of Christ before we're done in today's message. So it all fits in together. But we're going to look in a passage in James chapter 4 and verse 17. The most frequent sin we sin. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, it is sin. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, it is sin. This text pushes us into one of the least popular subjects in American Christianity today, and that is sin. I remember well uh, one of my students in homiletics who pointed out to me one day, well, Brother Hamlin, you know, people don't like it when you preach about sin. I said, do tell, do tell. When have they ever? You know, it's never been a real popular subject. And yet, if we're going to be faithful to what the Bible says, then there are times when we have to do this. It's not our job just to exhort, that is to instruct or to encourage, but also to reprove and, yes, rebuke. Um, Generally speaking, when it comes to sin, we tend to be able to recognize quickly when we are tempted to do something God said no to. And most of us... Uh, as believers, are pretty good at saying no to what God said no to. Now, there might be some particular sin that we struggle with more than others. That might have been what the writer of the book of Hebrews was talking about in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 when he called on us to lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily ensnare us, the one that so easily uh, trips us up. But it's also entirely possible that the sin that so easily ensnares us are the ones that James is speaking of in our text. Not so much the times when we're tempted to do the things that God says no to as the times where we refuse to do what God tells us to do. And by far and away, the most frequent sins that we sin are the ones where we don't do what we know we should do. That is exactly what James is talking about in James chapter 4. To him that knows to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. See, somewhere along the way we got the idea that the Christian life is all about uh, uh, just doing good. It's all about respectability. We, we try to live a good life and have a good name. We don't want to give offense. And whatever the list of taboos are, then we try to avoid them. But the Christian life is as much about responsibility as it is respectability. Uh, so that it's not just about avoiding the things that are bad, but also about doing the things that are good. Now, James in our text has been discussing and describing things about our life. And he's talking about a man, just anybody, somebody uh, who's talking about all the things that he's got to do. He is talking about his plans, whether it be for a day or for a week or a month or a year. And he's going to go in this city. I want to live here. I'm going to have this job. I want to do this. I'm going to make a living this way. I'm going to go and do these kinds of things. And he's got all of his plans all laid out. And yet James responds to that in verse 14 with this very famous passage. And if you've gone to church much at all, you've heard this. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor. Think about the morning mist. It's just a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. You see, James is reminding us that our lives have a very finite amount of time. And whether that's on the short term, where we say it and we say it all the time, there's only so many hours in a day. (laughs) Amen? There's only so much time. So short term, we think about a day. There's only so much that I can do in a day. Uh, But then we also think about the long term, and that's the years. Whether it's 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, it passes so quickly. We've got a short amount of time. When we think then of the brevity of life, and we think then about the consequences of eternal things, of spiritual matters, the incredible significance of the opportunities then that God does, God gives us to have an impact, make a difference in somebody's life, maybe a difference for all eternity. So when we consider the brevity of our life and the finite nature of our time, there's only so many hours in a day, only so much in a week, only so much in a month, so much that I can do in any given lifetime. Then we think about, hey, during this time, I can maybe have an impact on somebody for eternity. I can invest in eternity. Then James talks about how casually then that we make our plans. I'm going to do this or that. We talk about what we're going to do, what we want to do with our life. How casually, and James even says arrogantly, arrogantly, we make our plans without ever thinking then of how what I'm planning to do is going to affect my opportunity to serve God. In this very finite life that we have, then we have an opportunity to make an eternal difference. How can we make all of our plans, have all of our goals, and never spend a minute maybe thinking about how is this going to affect my ability to do what God tells me to do? Not just avoiding the bad things, but actually doing the things He tells us to do. It's a sobering matter. And I I, I know how serious this is. I know how sobering it is. This is not a shouting hallelujah kind of message. This is a convicting kind of message. And let me assure you, before we're done today, it's going to get worse. Uh, It's going to get tougher. James mints no words here. This is a very upfront kind of message. And we'll approach it in three ways today. First of all, we need to see the blessed opportunity. The blessed opportunity, therefore, to him that knows to do good. No employer would take solace in having a hundred employees who do nothing. Well, I've got some great people. They don't do anything. And I promise you that that employer, if he could, would trade all 100 of those do-nothings for one doer. One of the major things you see that happened in the last year in the Lord's work, especially as it relates to churches, and especially as it relates to our church, is your service of the Lord through His church 
stopped dead in its tracks. He said, well, I was still going to church. In a way, I was watching on TV. Yes, you were still watching on TV, and I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. Thank God you continued to give and support the church. I'm very, very glad you did. We've had a very good budget year. That's a wonderful thing. But when you stay at home, and even if you sang along with the songs, there's one thing that you could not do at home, and that served Jesus Christ in His church. You couldn't. And you found out something else. It was far too easy then to find something else to do with that time. You didn't just let it sit there. You reallocated it in many cases. You found something else to do. Where once you were faithfully serving, preparing, teaching classes, getting lessons done, you were helping in Awana, you were maybe singing in the choir, doing all these things, and now you found suddenly all that time on your hands. Wasn't it easy to find something else to do? Not saying it was bad things. Might have been good things. But you see, now we're at that place where we're beginning once again our services and we're moving forward and we're getting our classes started. We're looking for Bible school this summer. We're looking ahead to church camps. We're looking ahead to Sunday school again in the fall and Awana in the fall. And, and here we are. And we have to wonder. You've gotten used to not serving. Are you going to be ready now that it's time to get going again? In order to do, do that, we have to reestablish then how important it is for us to be involved in the Lord's work. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now I know that some of you are living out the truth of James chapter 4. As you've gotten up in years and your declining health makes it impossible for you to do very much or to get out. And, and uh, some of you can't even get out to go to church, much less to serve. You're living in that truth. Life is short and opportunities to serve Him is past in many cases. But I want to assure you folks at home who are there because of your advancing age and the fact that you can't get out, I want you to know this. I want you to know that your presence online is valuable to us. Your prayers are invaluable to us. There is no way for us to assess the value of the prayers that you pray for us and for God's people. The encouragement that you give through calls and letters and emails is still a valuable service. And I know that many of you who are bound at home are very faithful to do that. You know, I think about Brother Roy and how many people he called. He couldn't come. The last years of his life, he couldn't. I could call many other names that were the same way. As their health got bad, they were locked at home. But they could still call. They could still send out cards. And that's a, that's a valuable thing, a vital thing. I'm not telling you that that's a bad thing. But I will tell you this. The chances are that those people who are still at home, though they're homebound and, and though their years have caught up with them and they're not able to get out, and do, we can almost guarantee you that those people that are still praying for their church and, and still faithfully encouraging and still calling and still sending out cards, I can almost guarantee you that those people were carrying the load in their younger years too they were faithful they've been faithful their whole lives and now even though they're bound up at home and, and the opportunity maybe for them to get out and go like they once did is gone but they're still finding a way 
to serve Jesus. God bless you. I, I love you and appreciate you. I know you don't do it for me. But still, it inspires me. And we're so grateful that you're still faithful. But then there are others of all ages, and we're all simply struggling to get back into the mode of working and serving faithfully, though you know, though you know it's what God requires of you. We think of the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made for us all. We are therefore created in Christ Jesus unto good works God intends for us to serve Him and His kingdom through His churches. There's a classic outline on these passages, and I'm going to use it today because, you see, we talk about first the divine employment to Him that knows to do good. We are not saved by our works, but we are saved to work. There was a time when we were lost. We were separated from God. And our service then, the Bible says, was an abomination to God because if we were trying to offer to God our good works and our, to accomplish our own righteousness, God says, that makes me sick. So there was a time when you were lost and you would try to serve God and you couldn't. It actually made you worse. It made you feel bad. It made God sick. It was just absolutely, completely wrong because you were offering to God your own works. To try to make yourself righteous in His sight. And God said no. But now you see you've come to the understanding that it is not by works. That there is no work that I can do. If I could save myself then Jesus Christ died for nothing. If you could save yourself Jesus died for nothing. But we have come into agreement then under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that we cannot make ourselves right with God. And we have received the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us. So now we are S-A-V-E-D saved. It's a wonderful thing to be a child of God. Can you say amen to that this morning? We're saved. What does that do? Now we can serve God acceptably. Where before our works were an abomination. In fact, the Bible says in the Old Testament uh, that even the plowing of the wicked, even the plowing of the wicked is an abomination to God. Why? Because even when he's out there plowing his field, and that's a good thing, just a common thing, just out there making a garden, plowing for his family, just working. He's not working for God. He's just working. But he's doing it all for himself, and he doesn't give God glory. Even the plowing of the wicked is an abomination to God. But now, you see, our life work can be acceptable to God. There is a divine employment. I've heard it a thousand times. Preacher, I'm retired. You do know I'm retired. <laughs> yeah. Revelation 2.10 says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give unto thee the crown of life. Brother, I work every day. I know. I know you think I don't. That's okay. Uh, but brother, I have to work. I know. You know what I say to you? Revelation 2.10 Be thou faithful unto death and I'll give unto thee the crown of life. But Sunday is my only time to rest. Yeah, it would be nice to rest on Sunday. Be thou faithful unto death and I'll give unto thee the crown of life. There is work to be done. The divine employment. God has saved us, called us with a holy calling and now we can serve Him acceptably. What a blessed thing that is. It's not right, but it's a reality I've seen in ministry all these years. We end up working a few people until they wear out or burn out. While a lot of people never really get involved. And if it wasn't for James, 
We might just sail along in our rejection of God's will without ever thinking for a moment that it's a sin against God to him that knows to do good and does not do it. It is sin. If there's divine employment, there's also divine enlightenment to him that knows. (laughs) To him that knows. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, great passage, one of my favorite in all the Bible, says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of you than to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I could preach that sermon again this morning because I know it by heart, but I just want to talk about the first part, to do justly. What does that mean? It means to do right. He has shown you, O man, what is required of you. What does God want from you? And He's shown you what to do. What is it? To do right. A good friend of mine once called this the do-right rule, and I told him I was going to quote him on it, and I have now twice. Just do right. Just do right. God has shown us, enlightened us about what we should do. What a privilege it is then to be shown that we know what is right. On fundamental levels, God's right way is being rejected in America today. God, you see, has created us. And it is there that uh, the American culture at large is rejecting the truth of God. But you know and I know that the Bible begins with this. This is God's revelation to us. Chapter 1, verse 1. What did it say? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is where it starts. You start here. That God is our creator. Then we understand that God has written to us as our creator an instruction matter. Manual, what does that mean? It means he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, he just calls on us then to do what he has told us to do. We live in a culture where they are rejecting the idea that God has created us. And if God didn't create us, then mutations did. Let me just sum it up real quickly. I mean, that's the very essence of their idea on the other side. They reject God as creator. Therefore, we are a product of a lot of very fortuitous mutations. If God then, if mutations created us, it's no surprise then that they think just about everything is mutatable. (laughs) I know that's not a word. I couldn't think of another one on the spur of the moment. Have you figured out that science tells us one thing and then tells us something else five years later? Have you figured that out yet? Of course you have. Y'all took science, uh, many of you did, the same time I did. Why? You know, they don't bat an eye about telling us this is right one time and then five years later, ten years later, it's all together something else. And now on a very fundamental level of our very basic biology of who and what we are as men and women, male and female. You know, the Bible says God made us male and female. And if you read the Bible, God's instruction manual, you'll see then that He assigned us particular roles. Men are designed to be husbands and spiritual leaders and fathers and providers. Women are designed to be wives and nurturers and mothers. Yet you young people in the audience today are being bombarded, bombarded with the idea that we just don't give any credits to that at all. You can just make yourself into whatever you want. It's not going to stop with just that. 
The reason why I know that is there's a fundamental difference between the way that you and I as believers in Christ approach life and living and the way that world, the world at large approaches it. And it all comes back to our understanding of God as Creator. If I wanted to tell you how to get from Cabot to Little Rock, I would probably start out in the area where I live, and I would say go down 289 until you get to furlough, then you pick up Highway 15 and go out and hit Highway 40, and in about 15 minutes you can be in Little Rock, depending on the traffic, or you'll hit the traffic jam, depending on what time of the day it is. But I could also tell you something like this. I said you go down US 49 until you hit I-10 and then turn west. But all of a sudden, I'm not telling you how to get from Cabot to Little Rock. I'm telling you how to get from Mobile to Pascagoula. I just love that name, Pascagoula. You see, if you start at a different place, you're going to wind up at a different place. We start at a different place than the culture is at large does because we start here in the beginning. God created. That's where we start. And we know where we're going to wind up because the Bible tells us we're headed to heaven. There's a new heaven and a new earth that is coming. And oh, how we long for that time. So we start here. We're going to end up here. But the world starts somewhere else. And oh, where are they going to end up? It is time, young people. And I'm preaching to you right now in case you had not figured it out. And if uh, somebody is looking at a clock or a, a phone or something, take it away from them a minute. Tell them, punch them. Say, you listen. Listen. I'm preaching to you right now. Why would you take the word of people who don't believe in God, who don't understand that God is our creator, why will you listen to the stuff they tell you when you believe in God and you understand that God has made us You understand because the Bible tells you we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has a plan and a design for your life. Why would you listen to science that's changing everything every five or ten years when what God said 5,000 years ago is still the same today? And it never changes. God says, you see, I have shown you the right way. I've shown you how to live. And so it's not only then just about our understanding of the divine employment. God has a work for us to do. But it's about that divine enlightenment. God has shown us. I have shown you, old man, what is good. But America today is rushing headlong into the days of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where the good way is. And walk in it. I'd love to preach the whole sermon on this. I may do it sometime. As for the old past where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. Listen to me young people. And old people. And all points in between. I can say old people because I are one. Listen. So many people are rejecting God's path. And they are filling their life up with turmoil and anxiety, and depression, and regret. God says, 
Find the old path. I've shown it to you all along. It's still there. You walk in that way, that good way that I've told you to walk. And look at what he says you'll get. You'll find rest for your souls. But they said, Jeremiah 6, 16, We will not walk in it. We're not going to walk in the old path. We're going to make us a new one. Yeah. We're believers in Christ. We march to God's tune. And one of the most important things we can do today is remember the the significance of Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 that says, Be not conformed to this world. What that means is don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Later, God would send that same prophet Jeremiah down to the potter's house. And he said, go and watch the potter work on the wheel. And he said he was making a work and the work was marred in his hand. And then he remade it. And the great message that gives us is that God formed us. But sin, listen, sin, sin deforms us. But God can recreate us in Jesus Christ. The divine employment There is good work to do. The divine enlightenment. God has shown you how to do it. Then there's a divine enablement. So that every command of God is an opportunity because God never tells us to do something without giving us the ability to do it. We think of the man with the withered arm and Jesus told him to stretch forth his hand. Well, of course, that's the one thing he couldn't do. But with the command came the empowerment to do it. We think about it with the man lying at the pool. For 38 years he had laid there and couldn't walk. And Jesus told him to get up and pick up his bed. That was the very thing he couldn't do. But with the command came the ability to do it. The classic example, of course, is old dead Lazarus. Not just merely dead, but merely dead, but three days stinking dead. And yet Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And lo and behold, he did. With the command, you see, came the ability to do the command. Let's understand, God's commands are always opportunities. So many times we say no to them. Without a moment's thought, maybe even in arrogance, saying no to the things that God puts before us to do. Because we don't think we can. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13 says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Then when we know about the divine employment, there's a work to be done. We are able to do it. We know how to do it. And then there is the enablement to do it. God gives us the means by which we can do it. We need to understand there's an obligation that comes with it. Think about a doctor who comes up on an accident scene. He's got his black bag in the back seat. He knows how to save a person's life who's lying there bleeding on the side of the road. He could do it. He has the ability, he knows that he can do it, but he refuses to do it. Does nothing to help. Are we okay with that? Think about a crime scene where one person is attacking another and obviously intent on murdering someone else and a policeman is standing right there. He has the ability to do it. He has the training to stop it. He can do something, but he refuses to do it. He refuses and somebody is murdered right in front of him. Are we okay with that? Are we okay with the doctor who refuses to do something though he has the means to do it, the training to do it, knows how to do it? Are we okay with the policeman who refuses to do something? Well, I want to take it out of the realm of the theoretical to tell you about a story that actually happened right here in our own state. I'm not going to tell you the names that are involved, but I know them. 
It happened in 1985. It was a couple who were at church when they got the message that their house was on fire. They rushed home and found out, sure enough, their house was burning. But they were glad to see that the fire truck was on the scene until they realized that the firefighters were not putting the fire out. This particular volunteer fire department had created an association. You had to become a member of it. That dues were $20 a year. The people whose house was on fire were not members of that fire department, and they refused to put the fire out. That happened right here in our own state in 1985. Are we okay with that? And if we can see that there's something wrong with a person who has then that kind of obligation, they know what to do, they know how to do it, they have the ability to do it, but they refuse to do it. Then where does that leave us as God's people? I'll tell you where it leaves us. It leaves us with a neighbor across the street that we know is not going to church. But we don't reach out to them. Don't invite them. Don't share the gospel with them. It leaves us maybe with somebody coming in our church and, and nobody's there to greet them or nobody's there to say hello to them or try to get to know them. It, it leaves us with empty chairs up here in the choir. It leaves us with classes and ministries where people are not being filled. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. That is the blessed opportunity. Now there's two more points to this. And I'm telling you both of them are short. But they're hard hitting. If there's the blessed opportunity to him that knoweth to do good. There is also the believer's opposition and doeth it not. To him that knoweth to do good and does not do it, doeth it not. This carries the idea of refusal, not just neglect. A deliberate choice, one we make easily, James says arrogantly, for the most part, without conviction. You see, when we say yes to something God says no to, we sin and we do something God told us not to do. We immediately feel remorse about that and conviction. But this one is a very gentle trap and... When we refuse to do what we can do, oftentimes we do so without feeling any remorse at all. After a while, we never even think of it anymore. Until somebody like me gets this put on my heart by the Holy Spirit and I have to bring it to you. The only good thing I can say to you is I had to preach to that guy I look at in the mirror first. And I don't mind telling you, he got under pretty bad conviction. Him that knows to do good and does not do it. That's the believer's opposition, our rejection. But if there is the blessed opportunity and there is the believer's opposition to him that knows to do good but doesn't do it, there's also the really bad indictment, the really, really bad indictment. To him, it is sin. 
Jesus told the disciples a story in Matthew chapter 25. It was a story about a ruler, and the ruler represented Jesus himself, who committed his affairs, his kingdom to his servants, called them in, and he left them then a certain portion of his goods. He had apparently converted them all to cash. The Bible talks about them as being talents, but don't think about that as being the ability to sing. The talentia was a, an amount of money. It, it would be between ten dollars and $25,000 uh, today, maybe more. So this was a significant amount of money. So this man is leaving, this ruler. He is going into a far country, and then he's going to come back. And he gives this into his servants, and it says, each one according to their ability. Now, you know uh, that somebody who's given several hundred thousand dollars to somebody, you don't just do that to everybody. Uh, the, the ruler was not concerned about everybody being treated exactly the same. Some people can handle more than others. So he gave to them the things that their ability would allow them to be able to handle. He gave to one man five talentia. He gave to another one two. He gave to another one only one. That's the story. But he came back. You see, I told you we'd be talking about the second coming today. He came back. And he called his servants in. And the big issue, and though this isn't good English, it's excellent preaching, the big issue was, what did you do with, you, with, what, did you do with what I left you to do with? What did you do with what I left you to do with? Well, the man who had five talentia had invested it, and lo and behold, he now had ten. That's a double on his investment. That's a good return. The man who had two similarly had also worked hard. He had doubled his investment, but then he came to the one who only had one, and what had he done? Now, he had some mealy-mouthed kind of excuses, but the bottom line was he had taken that talent and buried it. And I want you to see what the Lord said to him in Matthew 25 and 26. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. Now to the others he said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But he says to the one who took the talent and buried it, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seeds, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. Even at 0.025%, it would have gained something. At my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten. You see, the problem was not that this wicked and lazy servant had taken the talent and spent it on foolishness. The problem was that this man had done nothing with it at all. Nothing at all. He had buried it in the ground. I try to put myself in that position and I could see, well, you know, I don't want to do anything right now. I'm, I'm busy right now. I'll, I'll go out there and dig it up here in a few weeks and I'll decide what I'm going to do with it then. Uh, you know, maybe he rationalized it, pushed it away that way. But the problem was when his master came, he had never done anything with it at all. You see, the judgment seat of Christ, when Jesus comes again, the judgment seat of Christ will be all about what we did with what God gave us to do with. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, it is sin. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we sin by saying yes to what God says no to, we usually regret it. We recognize it immediately. We've sinned. We repent. Though we may do it again, we've at least repented. We've recognized that we have sinned and we've asked for forgiveness. But when we take these things out and bury them in the ground, out of sight, out of mind, and when it comes to saying no to the opportunities that God gives us to serve Him and be faithful to Him, we often do that without ever feeling a twinge of conviction. If we can be easily trapped, easily ensnared, this is a gentle trap indeed. But it ensnares us just the same. And the longer we leave it buried, the easier it is to forget all about it. I can't begin to tell you how excited I am looking ahead to what God is going to do in this church. I'm excited. I also know that our time is short. That's true of me in two ways. Maybe both. (laughs) But at least these two. All I have to do is look at those spots and wrinkles on the back of my hand if I don't have a mirror close. If I've got a mirror close, I can see the gray hair that has me looking a whole lot more like my dad every day. Only taller. I know my time is short, guys. I don't have a lot left. A whole lot more behind me than ahead. I don't expect to live to be 124. More time behind than ahead. And if that time ahead passes like the last 40 years have, man, man, it's going to go quick. But I'll tell you something else. Jesus Christ is coming soon. We're closer to His coming than we've ever been. I don't know how much more time that He's going to give us, but I believe the time is short. I believe it. I feel it down deep in my heart. It's a critical time for God's people. It's a time, as Jesus warned us long ago, it's a time for us to work for the night comes when no man works and the darkness is deepening, folks. Our time is running out. But that doesn't have me wanting to go sit down in the corner somewhere and boohoo. That has me ready to get excited. I know I need to work. We've got to get busy. It's time. It's time. It's time. I know I've said it before. Let me say it again. It's time. To him that knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And I know when me and you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, If we could somehow accumulate the wealth of all of this world in our two hands and hold it when we stand before Jesus Christ, we would drop it. All the wealth of all the world, we would drop it to the ground as fast as we could turn it loose to hear him say two things. Well done. My good, faithful servant. You did good with what I gave you to do with. To him that knows to do good and doeth it not.
to him. It is sin. Let's stand together, please.